Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the beautiful day which you have given to us. This we recognize as a gift from you, as all good and perfect things are. We thank you most of all for the love of Christ, which is shed abroad in our hearts, and for the word of God which speaks to us day by day. We're thankful, Lord, for the freedom to gather together as men and women in Christ and to worship you, to study the Word of God, to fellowship together. And Father, I pray that this morning you will touch each life here and you will meet each need. And Father, most of all, that you'll be present in our study, that you will guide us in our thoughts, you will direct the words which are spoken, that you might be honored and exalted, and that we might grow in you to become more the people that you would have us to be. We're thankful for this church and for the ministry that is going on in the many different corners at this very hour. We trust you to be very present and to accomplish your plan. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> you should have a copy of page five. If you weren't here last week, there were some extra copies on the table. And page six, which is, we'll be going from five to six today. I'd like to read beginning at Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. On the first three creative days, God created, first of all, the hydrosphere, and we talk, looked a little bit at that, then the atmosphere, then the lithosphere, the rock's surface of the earth, and then the plant portion of the biosphere. Now, on the fourth day, we see that God is creating the astrosphere, the sphere of the heavens with all of its lights. Although God created the visible light on the first day, as we read, it's not until the fourth day that he has created the light givers. Now, of course, obviously, uh, God can do anything and he can have light shining without there being a sun or a moon. And, and we know in the passages referring to the new heaven and the new earth, there will be light without a sun and the moon because the Lord is the light. The light had been shining on the earth for all those days up until now. And now it's con concentrated in identifiable sources. Obviously, the greater light to rule the day we know is the sun. The lesser light to rule the night we know is the moon. And then the stars. Now, the purpose for these luminaries is, is clearly given. We're told in verses 14 and 15 that, first of all, they were to give light and heat to energize this world, to energize the biosphere particularly. And second, they were to mark off the time units, and we have uh, mention of seasons, of days, of years, and so forth in that passage. 
Now, we're all quite aware, of course, of the fact that the sun is the principal energizer of our Earth. The heat radiation from the sun drives the uh, wind cycles, and through the wind cycles, it drives the ocean currents, the surface currents of the ocean. Uh, the energy from the sun powers the great storms that sweep in or, or maybe don't sweep in, which we wish would sweep in. It also, of course, powers the hydrologic cycle. The evaporation, condensation, precipitation, all of that is also energized by the sun. <clears throat> The light and heat from the sun maintains life and produces the growth in the plant world. And of course, without the growth in the plant world, where would the rest of us be in the animal world, right? Um, we wouldn't be here. Now, we infer, of course, from this passage that the lesser light which ruled the night is the moon. The moon, of course, is not an, an energizer because it's simply a reflector. It reflects the light of the sun back onto the earth. But you've all been out on a beautiful moonlit night, I'm sure. And there have been times when it looked like the moon was almost as bright as the sun. You could literally read a newspaper by the light of the moon on some nights. And if you've ever been up on mountaintop in snow with even, even on a moonless night but clear, there is some light there which comes even from the stars, so that you're able to distinguish light from dark. Now the moon, as far as its influence is concerned, uh, outside of lighting up the night a little bit, its primary impact upon the earth is as the principal creator of the tides, the ocean tides. Now we know the sun also has an impact, but the moon has the greater impact because the moon is a lot closer. And if you're uh, familiar with the laws of gravitation, you know that distance is, is more important often even than size as far as impact of gravitation on one body from another. And so what's very interesting about this is that the gravitational effect of the moon does not only affect the waters, it also affects the lithosphere. And the earth rocks actually do expand and contract according to the motion of the moon. It's very, very slight, but it is there as the moon moves around the earth. Now, of course, when it comes to the stars, that's a different thing. The stars, as far as we know, do not produce any particular direct impact upon the earth. You can see a little bit of light, as I said. I've been on top of a rather high mountain on a moonless night, but clear, and there was enough, and far away from any cities, so there was no city light, there was enough light from the stars to be able to pick out a dark shape from a light shape. That's about all, of course. But the stars weren't really put there to light the night. The scripture says the stars were put there as signs. Now, one thing we know about the stars is, can you imagine what it'd be like to go out in an, at, at night and there were no stars in the sky whatsoever? I mean, on a black night with no clouds, way out in the boondocks, so there's no smog to light up the, eye, the night, and to look out in a total black void. Kind of frightening, wouldn't it? But those twinkling little lights out there seem so friendly, and, and they fill the sky up and, and kind of give you a little bit of sense of security, I think. But of course, we know that the primary use of the stars historically has been as navigational guides. 
If you've read the account of uh, how, for example, Hawaiian Islands were supposedly peopled from the people in the southern uh, hemisphere, they, they, they followed the stars as they ran their canoes up north through the middle of the Pacific Ocean uh, from island to island. And they followed the stars, and stars, of course, are used for navigation even today, and it could be even the animals use stars for, for navigation. They're still trying to figure that one out, how some animals are able to fly from one end of the world to the other and, and hit it right on the dime. And it could be that the stars play a role in that. Stars, of course, certainly, and, and the impact of this passage seems to be that the stars are there as signs of the seasons. And as the earth is, travels around the, uh, the sun and the tilt of the axis impacts the angle of the sun, uh, what stars are at what place in the sky varies too from one season to the next and helps to distinguish seasons one from the other in terms of simply stellar navigation. Now what comes out of all of this to me, which is very, very interesting, is not just that there's a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night and that there are stars and so forth, but the whole concept of time which is built in to this particular passage. This passage is dealing with the, the concept of time and the passage of time, talking about days and seasons and years and so forth. Now we've noted earlier that time was a creation of God, and, and we all, I'm sure, are aware of that, and that God himself lives outside of time. The creation of the physical universe involved the creation of time. Now, I, I've tried to do this, and maybe you have too, is try to think about how God could exist from eternity to eternity and how we could live in time, and for us there's a past, a present, and a future, and how do we conceive of what God did before he created the universe? You know, what did God do? Did he have a different universe at a different time? I mean, it's really beyond us to try to perceive of these things. Because to us, when it says, in the beginning, God, and it begins to talk about the creation, it's sort of almost like God was started up just a little bit before that, and the first thing he did was create the universe. You know? but, but it's almost really like God is a steady state being. And of course, if there is no time, there was no past with God, no future with God. He just always is as he is. And that's really difficult for, I, I don't think we can conceive of it, because we are built into a time frame. And everything in our life is reflects time. Uh, even the fact that some of the stars have exploded in great novas and no longer exist implies time in the universe. Now, there are many passages in Scripture, of course, which indicate or Im imply that God is beyond time, but one, one familiar passage I'd like to turn to just for a moment in 2 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 8. And, of course, this, this verse is read many times and sometimes <laughs> inappropriately employed. 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, I don't think that this passage is trying to define the concept of a day. It's not the definition of a day in God's 
mine. Some have tried to say, well, that's what it means, and so day one of creation was a thousand years, and day two of creation was a thousand years, and day three. No, this is a figure of speech. It's sort of like when Jesus said to Peter, no, you don't just forgive seven times, you forgive 70 times seven. The idea was an infinite number of times, not to be 490 times, and 491st time you can tell them to take a long walk in a short pier. No, uh, and, and so this is a figure of speech too, that God is outside of time. In, in a day or a year or a thousand years, it, it makes no difference to him. It makes a big difference to us. I really feel for the scientists who really believe that the earth is, for example, five billion years old. Because that's very intimidating. Just in the study of history, and you're looking at the course of history over the past 6,000 years from the time the first Sumerians came on the scene to our day, that's 6,000 years probably. And, and to us, we look back at that and we think, the ancient Babylonians, oh, they lived so long ago that we can't even relate to them. We often think of George Washington as, as living in the Dark Ages and he only lived 200 years ago. And 200 years, what's that? In historical time, that's, that's nothing. But when you start thinking in terms of hundreds of millions and billions of years, it's so intimidating you wonder why bother. And yet, of course, with God, it's neither here nor there one way or the other. The timelessness of God is contrasted, then, with the brevity of our existence on earth. In Psalm 104, 102, put my glasses on so I can read, 102, verse 25, Of old thou didst create, or thou didst found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing thou wilt change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. Again, how do you speak of the eternity of God without using the term years sometimes, as the psalmist does here? Thy years will not come to an end. Of course, what this does indicate is that the, the world in which we live is a transitory thing, and that one day this world will be gone, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll be looking at other passages a little later that illustrate that. Now, of all of God's creation, the universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, the plants, the hydrosphere, the lithosphere, of all God's creation, only man is eternal. You know, as, as Christians who've been in the church for a long time, we sort of take that for granted, but think about it for a moment. You and I are the only eternal things walking the face of this planet, including the planet, including all we can see in the universe, the only eternal thing that was created is you and me. We are eternal, nothing else is eternal of the created order. We're born into time, but our existence is for eternity. There was a time when we were not, but there will not be a time when we will cease to be. 
It's kind of hard to grasp, isn't it? We are eternal in the sense that from now on we're always here, but we're not eternal in the same sense God is eternal. Now, where we spend our eternity is the question that only this book can answer, and that is the reason for our existence as a church. That's the reason that God keeps us here, I believe, is for us to make sure others know that this is the only source of answers for where we will spend eternity. And what's kind of interesting to me is some will say, but I don't choose to believe that. Well, you know, whether one chooses to believe it or chooses not to believe it doesn't alter the fact. We are eternal whether we want to believe it or not. Some like to believe, as did the very uh, influential Roman poet Lucretius, that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die like a dog and we're gone forever. And, of course, many people live that way. You've seen the little bumper sticker, as I have, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's just a new way of expressing the same concept that Lucretius taught. And, of course, that gave excuse for riotous living, and many of the Romans loved his poetry because it gave them an excuse to live the way they wanted to live. And the Emperor Augustus was really not too happy with that idea because he wanted people to live as if things were going to keep going for a long time and kind of take care of themselves and of his empire. Now, if you go back through the course of history and study it, you discover the vast bulk of men and women, wherever you go, believe that man lives beyond this life. You go to primitive tribes on virtually every continent, except Antarctica, of course. Penguins don't talk much about that. Uh, you'll discover that there are people who believe, and most people believe that there is life beyond this life. If you've studied Hinduism, you know that the Hindus do believe that there's life after this life. Their concept of it, to me, is rather depressing, but, but that's their idea. And, and so is Bo are, are the Buddhists. Of course, Buddhism was born out of Hinduism. And then Islam, it's the same for Islam. And, and virtually all the major religions of the world believe in an afterlife of some sort. Now, to me, that's really strange. If man has evolved and just become this uh, mechanical creature that lives here and is here by accident, why is it that unconnected peoples all over the world have this same concept that there is life beyond this life, that there are spirit beings greater than they are, if that isn't reality? It's sort of like uh, one of the sources I read years ago having to do with the Noahic Flood. He quoted from 300 different peoples around the world, totally disconnected from each other, primitive tribes, all of which who have a flood, a story in their mythology. Now, why would that be so if it weren't for the fact there was a flood? I mean, they may be primitive and it may be mythological, but there's just too much repetition of it for it to be accidental. Now, the Scripture is very, very clear that if we repent of our sins and we are born again, 
by faith in Christ, we will spend our eternity in the presence of God in what the Scripture calls the new heaven and the new earth. You probably have noticed lately there have been a lot of major articles in major magazines having to do with either heaven or hell. It's kind of interesting. And when you read those articles, you think, boy, these people who write them are really pathetic in their understanding of, of what it's really about. Of course, they're trying to treat it in a historical sense. On the other hand, <laughs> let there be noise, and it was so, right, yeah. <clears throat> On the other hand, if we repent <laughs> of our sin, if we do not believe in the Word of God and Christ is rejected, then, of course, the Scripture is very clear about there is an eternal place where that soul will dwell. It will not be called heaven. Now, many, many argue over, yes, there's eternity for the believer, but for the unbeliever, there is perishing. But there's a really interesting passage, to me at least, in the New Testament, in the 25th chapter of Matthew. It's extremely familiar. And you've heard probably as many messages on this passage as I have heard. But let's just read through it quickly again. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory... Now, that's a time statement. God will come, the Son of Man will come at some point in time, in history. And all the angels with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer. Notice the lack of arrogance here. It's a, it's a true statement of humility. Well, Lord, when did we really do this? It's not like, oh, yeah, Lord, we did all these wonderful things for you, and I'm glad you finally acknowledge it. That's attitude we see sometimes in what is called Christian circle. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. <coughs> for I was hungry... And you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me. And naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? 
And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now here's the key, the clincher. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the word for eternal before punishment is exactly the same word as the word before eternal in life. So to the extent that we live forever in heaven is the extent to which those dwell forever in punishment. That's the implication as I understand it from what Christ is saying here. Well, that's frightening when you think about it. Now, of course, we think of it within the factor of time, don't we? We use a time factor. We think, oh, no, I can hardly think of, of the next year of what I've got to do, let alone thinking of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of years. But we have to erase the time factor and realize that somehow, some way, it's simply a state of existence, an ongoing state of existence. Now, how we erase the time frame exactly, I don't really know. And I don't think anybody can figure that out because if I think of heaven and I think of walking the streets of gold, so to speak, it seems like the first step would have to be followed by a second step which would imply a passage of time to me in our framework now. But, of course, we have to step out of that, don't we? I suppose and recognize, I mean, we all think about the fact, boy, my heart's beating and I've only got so many heartbeats in this life, right? And it's using them up. <laughs> But to think of the fact that one step following another step, it doesn't really matter because there's as many steps left as you have ever taken in eternity. And I guess in some way that erases the time factor. And so it really erased the time factor in terms of eternity in hell also, but nevertheless a state, an ongoing state of separation from God in outer darkness. It's really a frightening thought. And I, I think the fact that we really aren't impressed with how significant that really is tends to make us a little less evangelistic than we might otherwise be. Less concerned with the fact that others are literally perishing into a state of ongoing punishment, separated from God, conscious in their existence in that state. Now, God created the universe so that the drama that we have recorded here could be carried out. This is the stage upon which the great play is taking place, so to speak. And when it is finished, God's going to get rid of the stage. Back in 2 Peter 3 again, where we were before, we read 2 Peter 3, 8. I'd like to read beginning verse 9 down through 14. 2 Peter 3, 9. <clears throat> the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is impatient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know, there, there's, a, there's a purpose in understanding these truths. 
There's a purpose in understanding creation. There's a purpose in understanding eschatology. It's not just because we want to know about creation and want to know about the end of time. It's not just an intellectual interest. It's supposed to impact the way we live our lives. It's supposed to change our attitudes towards God and towards those around us. Looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God, an account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look at these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And a lot of commentaries say a lot of things about this passage. But if we take the Scripture at face value and we interpret the Scripture literally, primarily, it seems to clearly indicate that this physical planet will be destroyed and this physical solar system will be destroyed and this physical universe will be destroyed. Now that makes sense because the psalmist said it's growing old like a garment. So one day it would sort of run out anyway. And the scientists will tell you one day the sun's going to simply have too much helium for the hydrogen, and as a result, you're going to have a diminishing of uh, its capacity to produce energy. That will follow, of course, a state of, of nova in which the sun will flare up and it'll desiccate the earth, <coughs> probably evaporate the hydrosphere clear off of it, if that, that were to follow. Of course, we don't have to worry about it. It's a few billion years down the line. Don't hold your breath, huh? But of course, if you read the passages of Scripture about end times, uh, hey, it could be uh, very shortly. But whatever it is God chooses to do, uh, it seems very clearly that he's going to create a new, quote, stage. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be a new heaven and a new earth which will not have been impacted by sin and therefore will not be running down. It will not be using up energy. There will not be what is known as entropy, the constant loss of energy out of the system. And thus you have a declining level of energy throughout the system. That's what we look forward to. But in the meantime, we live in a decaying planet and inside of decaying bodies, in case you haven't noticed lately. <clears throat> You and I live within the phenomenon of time. It's kind of interesting, I think, to me anyway, as I look at this, to note what God did to give us the mark off the, the units of time, days and weeks and months and years and seasons and so forth, what, what God did to give us that. I think we are on the next page of the outline. I didn't keep my page right out in front of me here, but we should be moving to the top of page six on your outline. If you don't have one, it's on the back table. Now, days. What is a day? Well, the word day is used a lot of different ways in Scripture, but we're concerned, of course, with the day as we know it as a 24-hour phenomenon. And it is, of course, the complete rotation of the earth on its axis. One complete rotation constitutes a day, and we call that, of course, a 24-hour period. 
Now, the reckoning of what is a day, uh, when it starts and when it ends, has not always been the same. The ancient Babylonians, and when I speak of the ancient Babylonians, I'm talking about a people who lived towards the beginning of the second millennium BC. They were basically of Semitic origin. They lived in what is today modern Iraq, and they were inheritors of the vast civilization that was developed by a people known as the Sumerians, S-U-M-E-R-I-A-N-S, -E a people that, that was largely unknown before about 100 and 150 or so years ago when archaeologists began to uncover a pre-Babylonian civilization that only some had suspected existed. The Babylonians weren't much on giving credit. And you'll find that many ancient peoples don't give too much credit to their predecessors as to what they inherited from them. And the Babylonians inherited a, a full-blown civilization from the Sumerians. And the Sumerians were wiped out somewhere around 2000 BC, or that is, they largely began to disappear at that time. And uh, Abraham himself apparently came out of at least that land, if not that culture. Now, the Sumerians had, had, had developed uh, the early forms of mathematics, and they had studied the heavens, and so they had given this all down to the Babylonians. And from the Babylonians, we inherit the fact that the day was from sunrise to sunrise. The day began at sunrise, and the day ended at the next sunrise, the new day began. That was when it happened. Well, there is no particular point at which a day must start and a day must end. You can start it and end it whenever you like. It's, it's relatively arbitrary. But we know from the biblical setting that in the Hebrew world, the day was sunset to sunset, and it was also true for the Greeks. Sunset to sunset was their day. Now, our day is midnight to midnight. Where did we get that? From the Romans. The Romans moved the day from the Greek sunset to sunset to the midnight to midnight phenomenon. And so our day begins at what? 12.01 a.m. and ends at 12 midnight. Uh, and that seems logical to us. But it's not always been the same for all peoples. And one day is not right and another day is not wrong. You can, you know, you can start your day at 9 a.m. and end it next 9 a.m. if you wanted to. You might have trouble with the rest of our society if you did that. But, I mean, you know, there's no, it's not immoral. <clears throat> or breaking any laws of uh, nature to do that. Now, the word day comes from the Anglo-Saxon dog, which, not dog like the animal, but D-A-E-G. And uh, that, of course, is related to the German, if you're familiar with that language. Now, within the concept of the day, you have the concept of the hour. An hour comes straight from uh, Greek and Latin, and you find it in Spanish, translated directly, aura. H-O-R-A, and of course we get it uh, from that. Now the hour is a purely human invention. That there are 24 hours in the day was not something set by God. It's not something that you can say, oh well, but you can tell by this and that that it's got to be that way. It's, it's purely arbitrary. You could have 100 hours in the day if you wanted to or five hours in the day if you wanted to. It, you know, it's, it's purely a, a human invention. But the division of the day and the night into 12 equal parts is again Babylonian, probably inherited from the Sumerians. So it goes way back in the history of mankind. 
it probably goes back at least 5,000 years, the use of 12 hours for a day and 12 hours for a night. Now to the Hebrews, their practice of when, when they did begin to divide the day into 12 hours, they inherited it from the Greeks. Now, where did the Greeks get it? Well, Herodotus, who was a Greek historian in the 5th century B.C., says that the Greeks got it from the Babylonians. I mean, he was honest. He didn't say, well, you know, got it from the gods, and obviously it was a Greek invention. Greeks were pretty honest about a lot of those things, admitting they got many of their cultural factors from someone else. Now, in the Old Testament, what's the typical division you find in the Old Testament? Well, let's look at Psalm 55 for a minute. <clears throat> you find, of course, in the very first book that we're studying, what is the division? The evening and the morning were the first day. So you have a twofold division of the day. Later in Psalms, uh, I mean in, in Genesis, noon is mentioned. Psalm 55, 17. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur. Now, it's not particularly a, a, you know, a great statement of encouragement here, but the idea is that we go to God and it doesn't matter what time of day, He will hear us when we come before Him, even if we're bringing some rather, rather negative things before Him. But the idea is evening, noon, morning, morning, evening, noon, that these seem to be the typical Old Testament divisions of the day. There was the morning time, the noon time, the evening time, uh, three major parts to the day, not broken down specifically into smaller units as we know them in ours. Now, under the influence of the Greeks, and of course, Greek influence came into the Hebrew world back in the fourth century before Christ, when Alexander the Great brought his great armies down and, and he conquered the whole former Persian Empire. Uh, Greek influence entered very, very directly at that time and was to continue on, of course, for many, many centuries and then beyond that through Roman influence. The Greeks brought the division of daylight into 12 hours. And there is a passage uh, in the New Testament in John chapter 11, verse 9, where Jesus makes reference to this. John eleven nine. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? And then he goes on talking about it. And he's talking clearly about the daylight hours. The day meaning from dawn to dusk. Are there not twelve hours? Now, he's not stating an, a, a, something that is... Uh, eternal or something that is part of the natural obvious creation of the universe. He's simply uh, referring to a human invention here. Are there not 12 hours in the day? And that was what was accepted and used. Now, in those days, there was no accurate way of determining absolute time. We have absolute time because we have uh, stellar uh, observation, we have atomic clocks, we have all these things so we can know down to the split second what time it is in the day. But they couldn't do that in, in, in these days we're talking about. And so an hour was not always of the same length, right? Because if it's a 12th part of the time from sunup to sundown, 
In the summertime, that's a longer time than it is in the wintertime, right? So you divide it by 12, in the wintertime you have shorter hours, and in the summertime you have longer hours. That would be characteristic of that type of a time system. But it doesn't really matter, because they didn't live like the clock like we do. Oh no, you know, it's 1018. We've got this many more minutes. We ought to make sure we get home before the roast burns, and all that kind of thing. No. They didn't live by the clock like we do. So what's the matter of another few minutes, one way or the other, or even hours for that matter? Now in the New Testament, besides this passage that I read, there are references to the third hour, the sixth hour, the seventh hour, the ninth hour, the tenth hour, the eleventh hour. There are many references to hours during the day. Obviously it was part of Jewish culture by the time of Christ. But even in Jesus' day, even in New Testament times, apparently the night was not so divided because the references are to three watches. The first watch, which was evening, the second watch, which was the midnight time, and the third watch, which was cock's crow, morning or just before sunup. Now, the Romans had a different pattern. They used four watches during the night, and so there is a reference in Matthew to the fourth watch but that was a Roman reference at that instance or a Roman use. Now also we have the division of time into weeks. Comes from the Anglo-Saxon Wicca. This is very, very ancient. And the division of time into week seems to be simply that God just ordained at creation the first day, the evening and morning, the second day he did this, third day he did that, and he rested on the seventh day. God invented the week and imparted it to us and made it stick. And we've had the week. As long as we have any record of mankind, we've had the week. And we still use it. Why? Is there anything that demands the use of a week? Is a week a nice fraction of a month? No. Is it a nice fraction of a year, not exactly. Uh, so when you look at it, you know, there isn't any uh, supernatural other than God ordaining it here in this example reason for the week's existence. There's no natural phenomenon to mark it off. Oh yes, obviously it's a new week. They can tell by the way the sun is or the moon is or the way the earth shakes or whatever. Now the ancient Babylonians and the ancient Egyptians all had a seven-day week. Why? Simply carried over from God's ordaining it. How could it otherwise be? How could it be by accident that the Egyptians, whose society goes back almost as far as the Sumerians, would have the same length, a week of the same length? And what's interesting is both the Sumerians and the Egyptians named each day of the week after one of the, well, either the sun or the moon, or one of the five planets visible with the naked eye. Now, this is very, very interesting. Sometimes we don't stop to think of why we have what we have in existence today. This is Sunday. Why is it Sunday? If you go to France, it's not Sunday, it's Dimanche. 
If you go to, to Spain, it's not Sunday, it's Domingo. If you go to Italy, it's not Sunday, it's Dominica. Why? Because to them, it's Lord's Day, which is the derivation of those words. But to us, it's Sunday, because we get it from the Anglo-Saxon, and the Anglo-Saxons were pagans. We, it's, it's Sunundag, which means the day of the sun. It's identical to the Roman day of the sun. The, this day was the day in which they honored the sun. That doesn't mean they had special worship. It's just the way they divided it up. This was the day that fell to honor the god Solus. What about Monday? Well, don't have to stretch our imagination too much for that one, do we? Monandag, which comes from the day of the moon. And, of course, in Latin, luna. And what is it in French? Lunis. What is it in, I, I mean, Spanish, in French, lundi. is direct derivation. Worship of the day of the moon. The day of the worship of the moon. And what about Tuesday? Two was the Anglo-Saxon god of war, who was the same as the Roman god of war, who was Mars. Marty, Martes, the day of Mars. We still worship, uh, I mean, you know, in our, in our terminology, we still use the term of the worship of Mars. Wednesday, Anglo-Saxon Wudensdag, from the god Wooden, who was the chief god of the Norse and the Anglo-Saxons. And that was the god, it wasn't direct equivalent, but in the Roman world, it was the god Mercury. And what do you have? Mercules, right? Mercredi. Direct derivation from Mercury in French and Spanish are the names of the day. Thursday, well, that becomes really obvious, doesn't it? Thor's day, Thor's dog. Thor was the great god of thunder of, the Nor of Norse mythology. And, of course, uh, in the Roman world, it was Jupiter, Jove. He was the thunderbolt slinger. He was the chief god. And Thursday was the day honoring that god. And Friday comes from Frigsdag. The goddess Frigg in the German world was the goddess of love and beauty. In the Roman world, it's Venus. Viernes. Friday, the day for the worship of Venus. And then Saturday, Satursdag, direct translation from the Anglo-Saxon out of the Latin, the day of the worship of Saturn. And so we have the seven days of the week still named for their pagan origins. Operation today. Now we don't, you know, today I don't sit down here and come here and think, oh boy, this is the day I worship the sun. I better get out there and <laughs> pick up some rays today. No, we don't think that way. But nevertheless, we have that carryover into our society today. Now, the month, the word month, comes from the Anglo-Saxon Mona, Mona Lisa, uh, for moon. And, of course, the length of the month is observable. You can see how long a month is. It's 29 and a half days for the moon to completely go through its phases. 
Now, do 12 lunar months equal, equal one solar year? Well, obviously not, right? Because most of our months are 30 or 31 days. They're not 29 and a half days, right? So you add them all up, you have 354 days. Aha. Uh -huh. Suddenly you've got 12 lunar months and a solar calendar and the whole thing gets out of whack. And the ancients used to try to make it fit. And so they had to carry out periodic intercalations. They had to stick in extra days here and there in order to bring the calendar, solar and lunar, into line. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that? Every once in a while stick in an extra month. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> you know, I have to go to work an extra 20 days you know, this year because we're sticking in an extra month. <clears throat> Julius Caesar. Ah, we remember Julius Caesar. In the year 46, one of the greatest contributions Julius Caesar made was to change the calendar. I mean, the calendar was absolutely screwed up beyond belief. I mean, they were so far out of whack that, can you imagine it? Uh, it'd be like here, uh, Christmas time coming when everything's just bursting forth with buds and the birds are chirping, you know, and everything's Twitter-pated. This is December? <laughs> no. The, the, the seasons had gotten all out of line with the calendar because the calendar had not been put together properly. So what he did was just add an extra 80 days to the year. Oh, good, you know. The year 46 had extra 80 days in it. And many of the Romans in those days referred to that as really the confused year. <laughs> You know, 80 more days in it. And he, and he changed the months around, too. He, he took February and January from the end of the year. Ever wonder why you have September, which is the seventh month, October the eighth month, November the ninth month, and December the tenth month? How come the year ends with the tenth month? I thought there were 12 months in the year. Well, it's because January and February used to be the 12, 11th and 12th months. And he cut them off and stuck them on the front of the year. Uh, and so, which makes sense because January is named for Janus, the, gods, uh, the god of, of openings, of beginnings and endings, which you know, makes a lot of sense if you're into Roman gods. And uh, he set up a year which is basically the calendar we know today. Now, there was a slight error in it. It was very, very slight, but there was a slight error in it. So in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII says, let's, let's fix the error. So he said on October 5th, this day is now October 15th. I mean, 10 days just evaporated. <laughs> That'd be great if your payment was due, <laughs> you know, in between there. <laughs> kind of get a month free. But uh, he just declared those days non-existent because the calendar had gotten 10 days ahead of itself. And then what he said, in order to keep that from happening again, is every century which is not divisible by 400, you will not have a leap year. So in, in uh, 1700, there was no leap year. In 1800, there was no leap year. In 1900, there was no leap year. We will have a leap year in the year 2000. But then we won't have a leap year in 2100. Isn't that going to be sad? 2200, we won't have a leap year either. Boy, we're going to miss those years. I mean, those days, aren't we? <clears throat> As a result, the calendar is what it is now. And basically, it's pretty accurate. A few seconds here or there, uh, but that seems to get taken care of in the long run. Now, why do we have seasons? Because the Earth's cocked on its axis, right? 23 and a half degrees uh, away from the plane of the ecliptic. So the Earth goes around kind of at an angle, like this. 
And that's what gives us our seasons, summer, winter, spring, and fall. And in places like we live in the mid-latitude, we pretty well get four seasons. You go to the equator, you don't notice it so much, and you go to the poles, and it's really weird because you have really long seasons. Uh, but basically, the seasons have been created by God by the tilt of the axis. Now, was that tilt in there, there in the beginning? Some say, you know, at the time of the flood, God gave the earth its tilt. Well, we don't know about that. There's no way to prove it one way or the other. Were the days as long then as they are now? Were the years the same length then as they are now? We have no reason to believe otherwise. A year, why do we call it a year? It's from the Anglo-Saxon again, year. And a year is easy to determine. Length of time it takes the Earth to make one complete revolution in its orbit about the sun. So God set these things up. With the exception of the hour, which is a human invention, God established the day, the week, the month, the year, the seasons. He set them up so that we can what? Chart our lives. And we can record history. Now, it used to be like, well, back in the year of the Great Flood or back seven moons ago, but, you know, it was still something by which you could calculate time. And it was very, very important to man. Now, all of this, you may not think, has a great deal of spiritual application. It isn't, though, just for the sake of knowing things. It's for the sake of understanding what God has done. God has created this world and put you and me in it because he has a very specific plan for you and for me. And he has given us these things so that we can calculate the course of our lives. You know, Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, let's press on towards the mark. But he's not saying, I hate history, therefore let's forget everything that went behind us, right? He's simply saying, you cannot change what's happened in the past. And there's no use going around morbid about your sins of the past. But let's live towards the goal. But we learn from the past. Otherwise, what's the use of this, most of this book? If you've noticed lately, it's a history book. And it gives the whole history of what happened from Abraham on up to Malachi. Why? So that we might learn how to live for, God's, for God in this life. And God wants us to be intelligent, wise, discerning. He wants us to be able to relate to those around us. Not just come up and, and, and say, well, I believe it and you ought to believe it and I don't know any reasons why, but you just ought to. I don't think that's God's approach. God gave us all of this so we could understand. And if you've ever read the Koran or some of the other religious writings, you really appreciate the Bible. Because it's, lo it, you know, it's logical, as best as our finite minds can understand the logic of God. And, and it's chronological to some extent. And, and it makes sense. And so God put it there for us. And he put this whole system into effect so that we might learn to praise him from whom all blessings flow. Year after year, 
morning after morning, we lift praises to him because he is the creator of it all. And he wants us to live in accord with what he has planned. Now we have in the next passage, I guess we won't launch into it, but we have in the next passage the fifth day. And this is an exciting day because on the fifth day, God creates the first living creatures. Creatures that have a degree of self-consciousness. And of course, on the sixth day, he will create the crown of his creation. <laughs> Ustedes. <laughs> you. Me. Mankind. And that, of course, will be the most fascinating part of the study, I feel, as we get there.